welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of arts, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hesham Montasser, founder of The Lighthouse. If you are a regular listener to the show, you already know that I'm fascinated by design, and like many of you, have followed the work of Zah Hadid, one of the first prominent Arab architects to eventually become a globally recognized name. Such was her influence as a role model in the field of architecture that thousands of kilometers away, a young man out of Amman, Jordan, was exposed to the world of architecture thanks to his father, was studying her work and told himself he was going to work for her someday. Many years later, Tariq Hayat went on to become the regional head of her firm, Zah Hadid Architects, based next door to us in Dubai Design District. And this is how I met Tariq. And like so many things involving the lighthouse, it came down to chicken souffle. When we first met, which was maybe not as uh, positive <laughs> as our relationship now, we had just opened the lighthouse, Correct. more or less. And you had come in as the new head of the Hadith practice in the Middle East and had just taken up your office in D3. Opposite lighthouse. Opposite the lighthouse, Masbot. And then I recall, uh, my version is going to be very different than yours, but I remember you came for lunch, I believe, right? You left somewhat upset or in a half, <laughs> in a half let's put it this way. And then I got a call from D3, someone at D3, a, a mutual friend saying, you know, the new head of Zahadid's office came to the lighthouse. He's very upset. I think you should go and apologize. And I said, okay, apologize for what? He said, he'll explain to you. <laughs> so then I came to your office and found out that your food was late. Was that what it was? That's absolutely. No, I mean, okay, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a pretty much the version. So, I mean, like, I'm a bit picky when it comes to food. Yeah, yeah that, that I know now. Yes. I'm very picky. And uh, I think I, I ordered... Uh, sandwich or something and you guys maybe this was your first week i mean yeah, as a lighthouse operating early. yeah yeah and it was late and i was late for a meeting i didn't make any scene like i didn't complain. No, I, know I just, you just left <laughs> i just you walked away which is almost worse <laughs> exactly like i didn't open my mouth yeah i know and then know. two days three days after that you were very kind to come with a huge box of croissants which were absolutely <laughs> delicious yes. so i was very happy that you know I, I i did complain indirectly i mean imagine this is without saying anything imagine yeah. if i complained <laughs> I think if you would have complained directly, you would have not received the box of croissant. That's my fear. So this became my strategy in restaurants. <laughs> I go, I, do, I just walk away without saying anything, hoping, but nobody sent me any croissants. No, so it's, just uh, you. Well, it's interesting because I think our uh, acquaintance and then friendships went off from there. And it usually starts on a good note and, uh, and gets better. It started on a bit of an iffy note and then moved much, much quicker from there. But... Uh, I got to know you uh, throughout the last couple of years, and we've had a few conversations over lunch and, and whatnot. And I want to start a little bit first with your background. You grew up in Jordan, um, and your father is also an architect. And my sister. And your sister, correct. And my little sister is an interior designer. Wow, so everybody's in design and architecture, or not everybody. Your my, poor my, mom my, is probably excluded. My, my brother was the smart one. He's a banker. Okay, so yeah, somebody has to make money. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a banker brother. So growing up in that household, obviously with, I'm sure, an appreciation for, for architecture and design and interiors and all of that, how much was that an influence on your decision-making as you went through school, as you went to college and decided to become an architect? I mean, it definitely had a huge impact, but the impact was not about the passion of architecture itself. 
but to realize that there's a kind of professions where your legacy can live on. And I still remember driving in my father's car in, in Amman, in Jordan. And, you know, Amman is, is not Cairo. It's not like it's, it's a small, small capital. And uh, driving there and like he's pointing, oh, I've designed this house. I've designed this building. He's pointing. And he started like in the early 70s, you know, like I think he started his career in like 70, 70. Any particular style that he adopted or... Definitely, definitely. Than, I mean, definitely than my style. He's more kind of a classic, classic. Uh, architecture, very kind of neat and very clean. And uh, but he was one of the first architects, so he definitely had lots of residential buildings that he built, villas, built projects. So it was quite fascinating for me in the car that pointing for things he did. So I felt it's a kind of a profession that actually your legacy lives on, and it's something that that's when I started to realize that actually it's a kind of profession that shapes the cities. So it's not just about your personal legacy, but actually it gives you a bit of kind of ownership in the place you live in or in the, in the, in the area that you are kind of, you know, you grow up. So I became fascinated by that. Of course, I was visiting his office. I used to see his team back in the days, you know, there were the T-square and the drawings on the table and the ink and the physical models they do it by hand. I was, I didn't understand exactly what's architecture, but I was fascinated by the process and I was fascinated by the, by the, by the, the time they spent and the passion they need to have put on the, on, the, on the work. And for me, anything I do in life, not only architecture, if I don't have passion towards a certain thing, I lose interest. But did you have other interests when you started moving towards making a career decision? Because it's a big career decision. Did you have other interests that you may have put away and then said, well, you know, I know this path. I've seen my father do it. I did, yeah, I, I, was, I was, I mean, strangely enough, I was always in love with politics. Okay. And even when I was a kid, I used to read a lot about history and politics. And I was always fascinated by the, especially in the last hundred years, you know, like the First World War, Second World War, and, you know, the Middle East politics. Contemporary Middle East politics. Yeah. But I, I, I mean, when I was young, I mean, I was in school, I couldn't exactly understand what I can work. <laughs> if I love politics, you know, I can read about politics, but what I mean... Was just, your family ever involved in politics? Uh, my, my, my grandfather at, at a certain level. Okay. But, uh, I mean, I was very young to understand exactly what I mean. I, okay, I'm not going to be a politician, but what, doing what exactly? So architecture came as a kind of the, the, right, uh, the right choice. And I think, you know, indirectly growing up in the Middle East families, you know, even if the father doesn't say it, that I would <laughs> like you to be an architect, but there's always kind of a... a My a, pressure. A, a, a silent constitution. Yeah, for me. <laughs> yeah. So I think it... I, I understood that clearly, and I didn't want to challenge it. And I loved it, you know, like, I, I mean, if time goes back, I mean, this is sometimes people get surprised. Will I be an architect? Maybe not. It's not because I don't like it. Well, I've sure tried it. Would... Maybe I'll try something different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that goes to, to so many of us. I mean, I studied economics in college very much because my father was an economist. And again, it was not in any overt pressure on me. But I think I implicitly understood it or, or processed it. You were smart enough to know that this is the path. And, and there was also coming from the, from the Arab world, as you well know, also this concept of, you know, it had to be a practical profession. You know, and economics seemed to lead to something practical, exactly. as is architecture, as is medicine, etc. We didn't really have the luxury to go, as you see, for example, in, in, in Europe and the U.S. Uh, at that point, of, yeah, you know, go study Russian literature, because that's just a building block for something else, which is how liberal colleges work. Because accomplishments are very important in the Middle East. So you feel always there's, there's a target you need to achieve. 
you finish high school, you go to university, you finish master. Like there's something you need to follow. It needs to be tangible. Exactly. I was lucky. I went to an American liberal college and I was able to take enough courses in other subjects to build a base outside of economics. But I don't think I would have had, again, to your point of looking back, the, the guts maybe to go completely off the, the, the rails. I don't think I would have... Uh, you know, majored in, in Russian literature, even though it may have been a great thing to do because it builds the base of other things. But we, as you said, we're too prog programmed to be practical and having to come home with a tangible degree Absolutely. in something everyone understands. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so you, you charted your way to, uh, to architecture and then at some point you decided to go to the UK? Correct. Walk us through that decision making. Why didn't you stay in the region? Even when I was like young and looking at architects' work, I understood that if you don't have a niche, if you don't have kind of you know an upper hand in this profession, it's gonna it's gonna be very hard to survive, or kind of stand out. So, I didn't want to go to the states at that time. So I, I mean, my research was based on that. I knew that my destination, where I want to book my ticket, I didn't go to the states. I just felt too far. I'm a bit kind of you know homey person. I like to be around the region. Uh, I didn't want to stay in Jordan. So. That time, the UK was was a was a, a perfect option, and I, w I went to a specific school. Like I wanted exactly to know. I, I did a very very lengthy research to understand exactly where to go, and that's why the choice of going to the AA Architectural Association in London came. And I've understood who graduated from there, which architects. I mean, the top architects in the world uh, in the last 70, 80 years Came graduated from, the from yeah, like Zaha, Peter Cook, etc., etc., Richard Rogers, the biggest name in architecture. And um, because it's a private school and um, it, it, it has a kind of avant-garde way of thinking in architecture. It's not the kind of the traditional school. And I felt this is the right way to kind of sharpen the skills in the, in the right way. I didn't that time even ex plan to stay in the UK. I didn't plan. I just thought I'm going to finish. Sure, yeah, and go, go back. back home. Because I thought I have a ready career. My father has an office, like, tak, 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 everything is ready. But, uh, you know, sometimes we plan things while the actual things happening while we are planning our life, and that's exactly the, the, why the choice came, and um, and it, it was a, it was a turning point in my life. What were your first impression when you moved there? Because that must have been quite a jump. I mean, coming from Jordan, where you grew up all your life, to move to the UK on your own, you're studying. I'm sure a very competitive school. How was that transition? I mean, there's always the cultural shock, which which comes, and especially the stereotypes. Like, I remember before going to the UK, we always hear that the English people are very serious people, they don't laugh, they don't make jokes, and all these things. And I, was, I went there, I mean, this is the first first impression for me. I was like, they're absolutely lovely people. I mean, the sense of humor is absolutely amazing. It's very dry sense of humor, but I love it. Yeah. And the, the cultural shock was mainly happening from the work ethos and the work principles that you do there. And I think, uh, I always tell people that the things you live when you live abroad, the thing you learn when you live abroad is way more than the things you learn at university itself. So for me, actually, the life experience I got from the UK is way more valuable than the life, the actual experience I got from working at Zaha or studying at the AA. So definitely it came as a cultural shock, but at the same time, that's when you decide to make the balance between, okay, you left home, there are certain things you took with you, your principles, the way you grew up, things your parents maybe gave the you, the values. But at the same time, you need to be very flexible to adapt to the new lifestyle in the West. And quite often people, they leave home with the stubbornness that, you know, no, I'm going there, I'm not going to change at all because that's my values, this is a way, I mean, and they basically 
they spend years and years without progressing. So I think I went there with a conscious mind that with I an need... open mind. So you allowed yourself to be influenced, essentially, Absolutely. In, in, with a balance no, to no, make no, sure that you know, like the certain values are kept there. But and that uh, for me that was uh, that was a formula of success. That you know, like you are going to a place you have to learn this place for reasons whether you agree with them or not. They are advanced. They have different lifestyle that you need to adapt to. And I think in the same way, if you keep in the back of your head the, the kind of values you've learned back home and you make that kind of formula working, it's, um, that was my approach and that was my goal, actually. I'll fast forward a little bit. 13 years in Tahadid. Correct. 14 years. 14 years in total. I mean, a big chunk of your life and obviously the formative years of your career. Talk to us a little bit about Zaha herself. What was that like? Because I know you have, we've, you and I have discussed this before, a very personal relationship as well, not just Correct, a yeah. professional relationship. Uh, so talk us a little bit through that and what were your main sort of observations throughout those 14 years? The first time I heard of her name or who's Zaha, there was an, a, a book fair. And I remember I was 17, maybe 18, just before starting school. And I saw that book with Zaha's kind of profile on the, on the front cover. And first of all, I was fascinated by her look because she looks different. I mean, she, she, she has a, I mean, her, she's one of the few people that her character and charisma appears on her face directly. And then I started, you know, going through the book and I started to see her projects, the early projects, the peak, um, um, Cardiff Opera House, her hand sketches and her drawings and her paintings. And I was, I was completely astonished. And that's when I started, I remember I was telling myself, I knew that time I'm going to be an architect or study architecture. And I was telling myself, will I be able one day to visit her office? That was my dream that time. And actually it shows you that sometimes you plant small seeds in your so, head. And eventually, if you keep thinking of them, they eventually come true. I, I, and I was so lucky that Zaha was, uh, she used to visit the AA a lot. And one of the beautiful things about the AA, it's a small building in, in Bedford Square in London, central London. And I, I remember the first day it took me a while to find the where's the school because I was expecting to see a huge campus, you know, and uh, yeah, like yeah. universities. It's it actually a just a building, yeah. very tiny, winey signage, architectural association. And that time they didn't have Google Maps, so there was something called A to Z London, a book where you open and you. I mean, it was it was your own kind of manual navigator, and um, and Zaha used to go there a lot, and there was something called the AA bar, which is very very famous on the first floor. It's a small bar where. You see everyone there. You see Rim Kulhas, you see Peter Cook, you see Zaha, just around you chatting, having drinks. So so I used to see her a lot, but she was a diva that time that nobody was able to her. come to approach her. And I was lucky enough that Zaha was at my graduation jury. Um, and I presented, I still remember, I presented my thesis and my project on Friday. I finished the presentation and then went to Patrick. Patrick is Zaha's business partner. And, you know, I told him... I hope, you know, you guys like the work. And he said, yeah, actually, Zaha, she was impressed and she would like to, to offer you a position. Do you have a laptop? Because that time, even Zaha's office, you need to bring your own laptop. <laughs> I said, yeah, I do have my laptop. He told me, can you start on, on Monday? So that was it. That was it. That was my job interview. Amazing. How much for you and also for her did it matter that you both have Arab heritage? Was that even a factor in, in the way you thought of her and you were attracted to her work? Or was it just purely she's a great architect, no matter what background? I'm just curious about that particular fact, because obviously in our part of the world, there aren't many architect, no. architects of that stature. Especially women. 
and def most definitely not women, for sure. Fa did that play a role in, in in your thinking, any either implicitly or explicitly? Not not at the early days. At the, at the beginning, I was just uh, amazed by her work, yeah. and her architecture. Yeah, so as an icon. But then, because she has things, I mean, one of the most things I admire about people, when people fight a lot to achieve their targets, and when people are very kind of persistent and very consistent in the kind of you know achieving their targets and their goals. And that's why there are certain designers in the world. I love their work and I love their legacy. I remember last, remember once I discussed with you Alexander McQueen. Yes, why I'm yeah. very impressed about him. I went to see his movie because you, you have suggested to it. it. Yeah, yeah. And I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Zaha, first of all, she's a, she has all the things that's going to work against her. She's Arab. She's Muslim. She's Iraqi. She's a woman. In a in a in a in a men profession, architecture. And she went to the UK in a time in the 70s when the British kind of mentality or the English mentality was not as open as now. So she was a young lady. She just finished from the AUB studying mathematics. She went to London. And she understood that, you know, like she's going to fight a lot to achieve her goals and to, you know, go through the break all the stereotypes of the society there. So that was for me the most attractive point. So I passed this stage of admiring her architecture into admiring herself as a person, as a fighter. And for me, a fighter is the most attractive thing in the human nature. Being, Of course, fighting for, their, for the right causes, of course. No, no, understood. Yeah. And for me, that was, I mean, she managed to break every single stereotype. And, and I definitely, that time, I, I realized that I found a new role model I need to look up at. And, and I remember the early days, she didn't get any projects in the UK. And it was a much talked about issue, the fact that many of her projects came from outside of the UK, even though that was her adopted homeland, so to speak. Absolutely. Then eventually the UK sort of, I don't want to say relented, but almost relented and brought her into the fold. How much of that, in your view, was sort of because she's a woman, because she's Muslim, because she's Arab, versus, or maybe her personality? Yeah. I mean, I felt, okay, maybe I had a soft spot towards her because of this. I felt she's been fighting a lot. And maybe that kind of Middle Eastern mentality that I need to help her. I didn't, I didn't say that I helped her, but I... You want to be part of that team. I want to be part of that team to make her success story continues. And I felt she's been fighting a lot, and especially in the early days. I mean, she spent 10 years without building a single building because the entire world was against her. Why? Because she, she, was, she was different. I mean, this is one of the things. People are... I think this is human nature. They, they, we resist getting out of comfort zone and Zaha especially in architecture because even until now look at and, and this is for me one of the biggest criticism I have towards our profession that if you drive anywhere in the world I think architecture is one of the most late profession in terms of catching up with technologies 100% we're still doing the same buildings the same shapes the same you go to the client and he tells you I would like this kind of you know renaissance style I, you know this Spanish architecture you know I like Alhambra these are great buildings but the entire world is moving on, people reaching Mars, people are talking about nanotechnologies, people are talking about super, super advanced, you know, like technologies, and we're still doing the same old architecture. And Zaha came and she said, stop. I mean, we need to look at different alternatives. And, and th th again, that was for me the most fascinating thing about her. And there was a very interesting say, a circle has a 360 degree, why we are sticking to one degree only? Why everything has to be 90 degree? Why everything has to be straight? Why everything? Because our, I mean, look at the landscape and the nature, which is the most balanced, beautiful thing in, 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 in our life. 
nothing is straightforward. Everything is fluid. Everything is dynamic. So, so for the first ten years, clients were resisting that because it was very costly. Engineers were resisting that because their mindset and their kind of you know their education was going through certain formulas of structure and construction. So, I think she was the first architect who pushed the engineers to catch up with her architecture. So, so even in the universities, they have even computer programs that calculating structural, making structural calculations has to adapt to her new kind of style. There is a criticism that some of her buildings are not practical, and that that sort of I don't want to take away from the work because I think the work is wonderful, but because it's what's the right word embellished in some ways, uh, it looks beautiful. But when you go into some of those buildings from a practicality day to day, they don't work as well. Do you, do you think there is some merit to that criticism? Yeah, absolutely. But these are the early projects. Yes. Because she, she wanted to... Make a statement. She wanted to make a statement. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes architecture, again, that's when I said at the beginning, architecture, we are shaping the cities. So buildings is not only about serving the end users. If I build, even if you come to me and you want a villa for you, a house, yeah, you are the end user. You are the one who's going to live in it with your family. But still, your villa is not isolated from the rest of the world. So it's within a neighborhood. So, so even the design, I believe that even if you are paying the bill, but you shouldn't have 100% only say on the design because... It should be a dialogue. Because there's a community around you. There's a neighborhood around you that, you know, whether they love it or not, they, they, they need to face this building. And I think Zaha's philosophy at that time was, you know, we need to reshape our cities and functionality is very important, but let's first of all try to introduce, let's take architecture to a different level. When we come back, Tariq's advice to young architects who want to prepare themselves to go into the workforce after the short break. Hi guys, this is Hashim again. We thought of giving 2020 a last hurrah. So we're celebrating New Year's Eve at the Lighthouse, socially distanced, of course, but with the same Burj Khalifa views that you've loved since we've opened. If you're interested, please send us a booking request to contact at thelighthouse.ee or go to Eat app to our page there and just press reserve. And if you prefer a low-key celebration this year, we also have the perfect set of playlists for you to cozy up or even just for a special at-home dinner date. Just type The Lighthouse Dubai into Spotify and you'll find all our new playlists compiled by our music director, John Hanlides. My personal favorite is The Lighthouse Goes to the Beach, but there are so many nice ones, like the dinner mix and many others. So just go to Spotify and enjoy the music. And please remember to give us some feedback on Instagram at thelighthouse.ee. We love to hear from you, whether about the podcast, our music, or anything else. Welcome back. You're listening to The Lighthouse Conversations with Tariq Khayat, former regional head of Zah Hadid Architects and now head of his own firm, TKDP, which he launched in 2018. We are today seeing huge strides in technology, a huge push and very rapid push towards green, greener buildings, uh, sustainability. And I have a feeling I'm not an architect and not an expert. You are, but... Uh, similar to what you've said, is that some of the work we're still seeing has not caught up yet with that. And I know you're working on a number of big projects, including what seems like a very interesting project in China, in Shenzhen, that's sort of the Silicon Valley of China. How much of those concepts, sustainability, 
etc. technology are you incorporating in your new projects? How important is that? And number two, um, are you facing, not in this particular project, but generally, pushback from your clients? Because are they ready for that? Or are they still saying, I want, as you said, the Spanish look, I want Alhambra look, I want not, nothing against that. But yeah. I mean, this is how you position yourself in the market. Like when, when, when I started my own, my own office in 2018, I understood that, you know, like, and this is something I've learned maybe from Zaha. Like you need, you have to fight at the beginning to make your signature and your language. And, and that's why I think when clients come to work to, 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 for, for me to design their projects, they already understand that I'm not going to do them the Spanish mm. Vela. Are you, is that what you're looking for? Technology, sustainability? Absolutely. And, and this is the point. The word sustainability has been abused. And honestly, I, I've, it starts to irritate me when I hear clients or projects talk about this is the most sustainable building, etc. Because sustainability, it's not just about having a PVs on the roof or just, you know, like doing kind of smart, uh, you know, taking the box. You have uh, bicycle racks on the, in the building and you have, you know, like uh, electrical uh, car charging in the parking and the basement. It's more than that. Sustainability is what we've learned at school in 101 how to position the building on the site how to allow certain cross ventilation how to look at the proportion of solid and you know like glazing in your building basic basic measures that actually cost the client nothing 100%. and that's why clients they they freak out when they when they talk about sustainability because if you go to the, the and and that's unfortunately it became a commercial thing you have the 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 lead platinum gold silver etc and the client understand that if you want to go higher, the ticket is going to be more expensive. expensive. But I always, in our designs at least, the project we are doing in Dubai or in China, we're really trying from day one to explain to the client that, okay, if you want to tick the box and you call your building platinum lead, this is something different. We can talk about it. If you want that certificate to hang it on the wall. But let's do the basic 101 measures of sustainable, the things we've learned at school, you know. Where the, where the optimum kind of orientation of the building for solar gain, you know, how to kind of, you know, reduce the energy consumption by having certain, you know, wall thicknesses, by certain basic things that absolutely Certain materials. And, and material. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying because I completely agree. I mean, I grew up in, in, in Egypt, as you know, and Hassan Fathi was yeah, absolutely. The certainly someone. Yeah. We used to have a, a small house designed by Hassan Fathi, one of his disciples in Fayoum, and it was a, bri- a mud yeah, made out of mud brick and they had these arches which allowed for the cross ventilation exactly so you didn't need any extra ventilation and it was cheap it was not about it being expensive it was all about uh, you know using natural materials and designing something that is you know that works and and i feel we're going back to that but i 100 agree with you the trend people are commercially abusing it it seems for, you know, you need the certificate and therefore you need to pay more, which doesn't need to be the case. And, and the basic thing, honestly, the basic sustainability approach for any building is to understand where's my site. If I'm designing something in Dubai, it's completely different than if I'm designing something in London, if I'm designing something in Stockholm, or if I'm designing something in Cairo. And that's why, for example, now in August, the hottest month in Dubai, try to walk in Business Bay, try to walk in Marina, or try to go work in um, Old City, where the souk market and, you know, like Pastakia. Because back in the days, they didn't have technology, but they, they, they had a the logic. 
And I'm not saying that people now, they don't have a logic, but they were forced to use the logic. Fewer choices had to be more innovative. And that's why when you go and walk in Bastakia now, they have narrow streets, they have thick walls, small windows. That's why for me, I find it absolutely, I mean, excuse my language, insane to design a complete glass boxes in Dubai. But they're all glass boxes. Unfortunately, because this is the this is the misunderstanding that if I want to have a modern... It feels contemporary. It looks contemporary. And this is, abs- for me, that's why. If I want to say about the most successful building in Dubai, from an architectural point of view, completely, it's the World Trade Center, which was built in the 70s. Because they, they understood what this region requires to have a, a comfortable building. You know, they have double skin facade, they have screen, they filter the very strong sunlight that comes in, in inside the building. The energy consumption is completely different. I bet you the energy bill for the Trade Center is half maybe the energy bill in other kind of glass towers in Dubai. You have a number of clients. One of the, the clients you're involved with is Arm Holding uh, and others that are doing very interesting projects now. How are you able to, or are you able to influence their thinking? I'm not necessarily them necessarily, your clients, by, by understanding exactly what you've said and why we don't need any more glass boxes. We may need to think about something that works with our climate, our nature. I mean, clients are clever. You know, when you have a client who's willing to invest X millions, you're talking with developers, businessmen, etc. And it's just a matter of explaining the logic and the principles. So definitely, even if a client comes to me and they're asking for a, designing a glass box, definitely if you just tell them no, it's become kind of, you know, like yeah, an, an ego so. issue. So we always, in our design approach, we always go through options and we always explain the options. And if you explain to the client your philosophy or approach, not only from aesthetic point of view, because they will not buy it, because they, are try, they think they are trying to push your design language, but if you explain to them from a design perspective, from practicality perspective and from economic perspective numbers they'll absolutely buy it if you really tell them that if you have a double skin facade that allows you to filter the the solar gain inside the building which is going to have an impact on your MEP design it's going to have a huge impact that you know like on the on the long run of investing in your building for over 15 years you will you find differences and it's about, you know, we're a very visual profession. So when you provide the client with options and different design options, and you, you, they will understand that, you know, like actually going with a more sustainable approach makes more sense. So let's talk a little bit about your current practice, which you've started in 2018. You worked for a major architectural firm for many years, very prestigious, but ultimately it's not your firm. You are a partner and a firm that runs that has a big name, and you switch to something that you own, that you operate, you're taking full responsibility for yourself, for your staff, and then you get COVID. So you really had to wear, beyond uh, your architectural hat, you had to wear now an operating owner hat. How was that shift? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I remember always my father told me, and when I started working for Zaha, I remember I told him I'm going to work for one year just to get the name on the CV. He told me, yeah, sure. <laughs> he told me, work as much as you want, but don't work forever for an architect. Because architects, he always tells me, architects are the conductors, are the leaders. Mm-hmm. So always plan to have your own. I'm not asking you to come back and work for me. And I've never worked for him, by the way, never in my life. Um, so g- having my own business was very, very kind of 
I mean, I, I've been thinking about this for a few years. Even when, and, and Zaha, she knew that at some point. She told me, I know one day you're going to have your own practice. It's a natural evolution. Yeah. Natural evolution. And I felt that, you know, like, it's time for me to start having my own kind of path. I knew all the bill I need to pay. I mean, the, the, the emotional, psychological uh, bill, it, it comes with having your own business. So as you said, uh, back in the days, I was just involved in, you know, running my own cluster at Zaha, my own projects. But by the end of the day, somebody paying the bill, the salaries, the expenses. You don't have to work. You don't have to worry about the lights being turned on in the morning. Exactly. Yeah. Now that's your job. Now this is my job, <laughs> yeah. and and that's why I'm trying to make it balanced because by the end of the day, I'm still passionate about design, and uh, our business model is very simple. It's it's very linear practice. We are a boutique studio. We are design led. We are focusing only at the concept and schematic. Uh, stages of the project so at the early stages when we are having one-to-one interaction with the client writing the brief the strategy the vision of the project we always collaborate with local architects who are registered here who have the production and the factory to produce the drawings the shop drawings the tendering drawings we're still involved in the entire lifespan of the project but we are heavily involved at the early days of the project so like the first maybe six months of the design intense design of the project until the the vision of the project is completed, signed off by the client, and then we work with the, our collaborators, our partners as a local architect. And I understood that, you know, it takes a long time to get out of the shadow of Zaha, because of because people until now they kind of you know, it's it's. I mean, I'm very proud of that, you know. I'm not, but also I'm fighting a lot to get out of this shadow. I owe her a lot. She shaped my career, Zaha, but in the same time. It's pointless for me to leave Zaha to be Zaha point one. Did you struggle when it came to your own professional identity post Zaha? In other words, let me explain. I used to be a banker in a former life. And when I left for the first year or two, I was struggling with my identity, both personally and professionally, was so wrapped up with my previous job that I found it hard to remove myself. Now, your case is a bit different because you stayed within the same profession, but still, you had this massive name behind you. So was that a, a struggle for you or did you find that transition easy? No, it's a, it was a huge struggle. And especially when I sit with the clients, because the first, one of the first sentences I tell the clients, I don't do Zaha's design. Yeah. With all due respect, I love them. I mean, I grew no, up no, I with them. But for me, it's not the point. pointless yeah. just to copy the same language. I always tell the clients that the things I took out of Zaha's office is the is more kind of non-tangible things the way of thinking thinking out of the box pushing the boundaries the research every project is a completely different unique case study we don't copy ourselves we don't repeat ourselves and collaboration Zaha as a person she was a great architect but she was very very smart in investing into people young talents uh, researchers fabricators consultants it's a teamwork and this is exactly, that's what I took from the office. I didn't take from the office that you do the curve like this and you do, you know, the, the building mass like this. And we're very lucky, like, when we now go to a new project with a client, at the very early pre-pre-concept, they get completely shocked by the level of information we give them and the options from day one. And they tell us, we don't see this in the market. And this is something I took from, from the office. We're optioneering, we call it. We keep exploring options, 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 until you come to something that you are satisfied with and the client is satisfied with. So I think I took from, from the office the way of thinking. Um, and what, what I always tell the clients, we, we provide a practical, neat architecture with a twist. 
and that twist what gives the identity to the project. So, uh, and until now, it's I mean like Zaha is always going to be there, you know, sure. I'm, I'm, I, sure. and something I'm proud of. But the most important thing I'm telling everyone that you know like we are not doing Zaha's architecture, yeah. we are doing maybe Zaha's way of thinking. On, on the bigger bigger picture. And that's why, for example, our practice now is heavily investing in young architects, fresh graduates, interns, because that, this was Zaha's biggest weapon, investing in the young talents, because these are the people with the fresh ideas. It's obvious that you're very interested in kind of the future and futuristic design, as evidenced by taking on a project for someone that's just started on his own in, in China. I mean, very big project, very high profile. But clearly, and I don't know the client, but I'm guessing here that they were willing to be a bit more cutting edge, which I'm sure was part of the attraction. I mean, the attraction, that, that project in China was very, it was, a, it was a game changer for us because this was, we, it was our first international competition to win before even finishing our first year. And the, 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 the strange thing that maybe not everybody knows this, but we won this competition over Zaha. So we were competing against Zaha. I mean, not Zaha's person, because no, I mean, no. the head, the, the head, practice, head office, yeah. yeah. And when we presented the interim after the first month in China, and that time the client heard that there's a new architect, he's an ex-Zaha. Of course, the client was smart to understand that I will not be charging Zaha's fee. Of course. So this was, of course, in, 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 fact. in the, a fact. But when we presented the interim submission and then we presented the final submission, the client... And they don't speak a word of English, but I had my, my, my business partner is Chinese. He's, he's from Guangzhou. And, uh, you know, the, I don't know if you've been in a Chinese meeting where you have like 30 people sitting and the chairman sitting at the top of the table. They don't talk. And can I just interrupt you for a second? Did, did you choose that business partner because of your interest in developing relations and business in China? I mean, that's what I'm saying about forward looking. I mean, clearly there must have been a strategic decision at the uh, practice level yeah. of that China will be a focus. Or, no, or, no. Or I'm, no. I'm, I'm, I'm a very patient person, and I, I think about things now that I might be doing in 10 years. So that's what I'm saying. You're, you're planting this, seeds. This guy, his name is Chachin, he used to work in my team at Zaha, and he was part of my team okay. um, over like seven years. And I remember even in 2013, 14, when we have lunches together, I always used to tell him, one day we're going to have an office together. One day we're going to start our own thing. And I knew that I'm going to be working with him. First of all, we've been working together a lot. He's a great designer. We have the same language. We have the same mentality. And him being from China was, of course, plus. A, a plus. So talk about the client back in China, the competition. People ask, why did you win that competition? And even people at Zaha, they asked me that time, how did you win it? And I, I mean, this is the three factors that the client himself said when he, when he awarded the project to us. He said that, you were the only practice, and they've been looking at developing that huge master plan. It's one million square meter in Shenzhen. They've been looking for architects over the last two years. So they went to big names over the last two years. And the last competition was us, Zaha, and the third Chinese office. And they said, you won the project because, one, you provided us with an iconic landmark. And Chinese, they love landmarks. They love iconic, wow designs. Second, you understood and respected the community and the neighborhood in Shenzhen. So we actually, our design was completely integrated. As opposed to something transplanted. So the community loved it because it, we didn't plant an alien within their city. And the third thing that our, our areas and the usage of our kind of, you know, the basic GFA built up, etc., was completely working with their IRR, with their books, basically, with their, with their feasibility studies. So we managed to hit the three elements, and that's put us on the market as a 
could be an international player. That's why we have a small office in Shenzhen now to follow up that project. And the same client gave us the second master plan. And that's it's very, very important in architecture to build the trust with the clients. Because, because once they trust you and once they understand that you are actually working for their benefit, even if you're charging them a bit extra, but they're getting that back on the long run. So they give us the same project now and we are doing now two master plans in Shenzhen. back for a second to the young architects. This region, in my view, does not lack talent. And certainly, architecture has been a big feature of the Middle East for a long time. Many architects, young, young graduates of architecture school, whether here or they go like yourself abroad and want to come back. Very competitive business, though. You know, uh, a few do, those that do well do very well, but that's the exception. From my experiences, if not, you're really living hand to mouth. What are you looking for today when you're hiring young architects to your practice? Or what attracts you? What stands out? I mean, maybe if you go back a step, we architects have a serious problem in the region. Why is that? Because I think it's th- people still un- don't understand what architects really do. Okay. And that's why in Arabic, there's nothing called architect. They call you muhandis, engineer. Uh-huh which is something annoys me a lot, with all respect to engineers. But, but you get to be called Bashmohandis, which is... Bashmohandis, yeah. I get called Bashmohandis without even being a Mohandis. <laughs> so I didn't have to study or do anything, exactly. but I just wanted to know that. But pe- people, under- until now, they don't really understand the difference between an engineer, civil engineer, architect, and the contractor. And and I think, I think in, in Europe and in the West, this is kind of architects are more respected, I would say, than in, in this region. People start slightly to change and understand that architects actually, they're not a contractor. They don't build it. And that's always goes sometimes the client. I'm not the builder. Like, I'm just a designer. I don't build this building. You need to find somebody to build it for you. <laughs> so so for, when it comes to your question about young architects, so this is the first challenge they face. There's no name. Exactly. There's no name for it. The second thing I always tell Students and whenever I give a lecture, because I, I, I use, I mean, I, I'm still, I mean, now because of COVID, it's less, but I'm a lecturer in London, in, 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 in Jordan, in the UAE. And when I go to lectures, usually professors, they don't, they get annoyed at the, at the end because I always tell students and I always get these questions from students or from professors, what's your advice to the students? And I always tell them that you really, really need to think before starting studying architecture. And when I go to the first or second year students to give them lecture, I tell them, you still have a chance to change. Mm -hmm. I'm not threatening them. I'm not scaring them. But as you said, competition is extremely high. There's so many architects around the world. There's, I mean, the the competition is being used and abused in, 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 in architecture. So if you don't have a niche, if you don't really, really invest in yourself, you're going to end up just being an architect. And there's nothing wrong in just being an architect, but how you want to position yourself. If you have a, if you, I mean, architects are usually ambitious by nature. So I always tell the students, if you are a fresh graduate, I will never hire you because you are a great designer. I don't care if you have. Yeah, a, yeah you care about the, the the building blocks, the values. And I don't care if you have an A. I care about your skills. What computer digital skills you have okay. that I can use in my practice? So it's computer and digital skills at the beginning, right? Because there's like thousands and thousands of young architects, mm-hmm. and if I'm gonna hire you, and I'm a designer, and I have seen a designer in my practice, I'm not gonna hire you to design for me. I'm hiring you to translate my ideas 
into a design. How important beyond that, as they evolve, is it that they actually are able to use their hands and sketch? And I mean, because I'm, I would, I can imagine a new generation of architects don't don't ever use their hands. To be honest, I mean, this is something. Maybe this is people will really criticize me. I don't care if they can sketch or not. Okay. What I care that they can turn on the computer and they can open one of the quick, extremely powerful modeling tools like Rhino or Maya. And I tell them, that's how I work with my team. We sit together. We sketch a few things, of course. We talk about the idea, the approach. We, we study the site, which is very important. And then I want them to go and explore ideas. And it's, it's a fact. Fasters are, computers are faster than human. So when you sketch something quickly in, in a computer, it gives you quicker results than sketching by hand. So personally, in my office, I don't look about if, if you've had A in all your you know, courses, or if you are the best designer, what I care now about, how skillful you are in a computer. And that's why, so uh, that's why I tell students in the universities, honestly, if you don't invest in these five years, really in, 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 in sharpening your digital skills, you are doomed. How much are these universities teaching these digital skills? The, this is, again, exactly. Yeah. Whenever I go and I give a lecture and students will give me, Oh, yes, Tariq, but you know, because they don't teach us, us, it's not the university role to teach you these things. When I went to the AA, I remember my first exercise with uh, the first workshop I've been given. The teacher came, he sat with us for 15 minutes. He told us literally, this was my first exercise. Your, your task is to prepare a digital and physical model of people movement in South Bank of London. And he left. Yes. So, so again, Unfortunately, we still have this kind of perception in the Middle East that university teachers are not school teachers. School teachers, they really need to teach you. Mm. Mathematics, literature, physics. School teachers, uh, university teachers, need to give you just a direction. And then you need to do your research. And we still have, especially in this region, we still have the perception that a professor should be really feeding you the information and telling you where to go, what to do. And especially for architecture, if you don't, do your, if you don't learn how to do research from day one, when you're 17, 18, you're doomed again. So that's why um, even if university, and university, it's not university's job to teach you all these digital skills. You have a holiday, you have a summer holiday, you have a, you go back home at, and that's what I was telling them. I'm so glad I don't work for you. This seems very like rough. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he's going to make you work in the summer holiday as well. Like, honestly, like I remember, I always tell it, it's very, very hard job. I'm joking. I swear the first year at Zaha, the first year, I didn't take a single weekend Mm, off. off a single weekend. So I've been working for 12 months nonstop. Seven days a week. What about now that you have your own practice? Are you able to carve out a bit of a, a work-life balance? When you own your own business, in a way, it's funny because people think that you have all the time in the world to take time off. Absolutely and, not. But yeah, and, and also you're your own boss, but you, there's huge responsibility you put on yourself. True, for, and, there's, for uh, making things and, and you have a staff, you need also to, to, to establish a model for that. Also, yes. But, but again, I, I hate, you know, I hate... Um, these kind of businesses where, you know, it's sick, it's nine to six, your lunch break is one hour. You yeah. need, I always tell my team, I don't care when you come. I don't care when you leave, as long as Things get the job done. is no, done. I, I buy that too. We have a similar philosophy. And, and honestly, the more you give freedom, and this is something we... Especially with creative people, yeah. And this is something I took from, from working at Zaha. Okay, I used to work 24 but nobody forced me. No, nobody came and told me, you need to stay in the office over the weekend. 
But once you are once you are in love with what you are doing, you invested in it. Yeah. You, you invest in it, and and this is what I always tell students: you really need to. I mean, it's your choice. You need to make up. You are in your first or second year of school. You need to make a conscious call. Do you want just to finish architecture peacefully, quietly, join a firm, being an architect, waiting to be promoted? And there's nothing wrong about that. Do it. But if you really want to shine, and you need to be out of the box. you really, really, really need to work hard on yourself, really hard, because it's a, it's a very tough profession. And you cannot just, you know, dip in, dip out whenever you want. No, it's, it's a full-time job. Is your father still practicing? He, the office is still there. He, he goes, I mean, maybe he takes one project a year. Just yeah. my so father, he, is, he, he, he cannot sit on, yeah, uh, on the sofa. Keep himself going. Yeah. No, understood. The reason I'm asking this is you spoke earlier about one of the reasons you came into architecture is you understood... that in some ways you leave a physical legacy. As you think about that for yourself, it's far too young, but I'm saying as you start building up your practice over the next, hopefully, you know, multi-decades to come, how much do you care for it to be in a particular place? In other words, for example, do you care to have something tangible in Jordan where you grew up? I mean, is that something that's important to you? Maybe because I left Jordan early, so... I, I, I love Jordan, but for me, it, your, your thinking you becomes more international. For me, Dubai is home now, you know, and uh, I'm looking so much forward our first project, hopefully, um, with, with ARM Holding. And again, this is, I just want to touch on that. The success of architects and architecture is not about just being creative. It's also by having a very understanding clients with a vision. Because you could be the best architect in the world, but if you don't have an, an, a client who buys into this and who supports you, It's going to be pointless. So, like, for example, hopefully our first project is going to be on site early next year. So just the idea that I'm having a legacy or having kind of a signature in imprint, Dubai, yeah. imprint in, a, in a city I love, I owe a lot. It's just a huge satisfaction, a huge self-satisfaction that you feel that, you know, you are giving something back to a place you, you love. And definitely in Chinzin, I mean, I will never live in Chinzin, maybe. But even going to Chinzin for once and you started to visit the site and understand where the project is going to be, it started to develop a very strange kind of emotional attachment to the place. You know, maybe I'm going to visit Chinzin once in 10 years, but sure. at least it makes you feel that you left something there. Of course, of course. So, and and that's, what, that's the beauty of architecture. Even if you go to... Google in 10 years, you'll say, okay, I've done that. You know, this is, and, and the point is, it's not just you've done it, but you remember, you know, like it took us, for example, remember that fight over the last three months to, to do that kind of, you know, facade or that kind of, you know, garden or that uh, entrance or that door? Because it's like each part of the building has a story behind it. And usually not pleasant stories because all those fights and, and challenges. Yeah, and financial issues and re-engineering. And But it's very self-rewarding. Architecture is not necessarily a very financial rewarding career. It could be amazingly financially rewarding if you know how to do it yes. and you have the right clients. But that's not the reason almost anyone does it. But it has, it's a very self-rewarding career because you, know, you feel that you've, you've done something to the community. And, and this, is, this is what we are always trying to promote in our projects at our office, that we don't design for the end users, we design for the communities. I want to remind you that on your to-do list will be the Lighthouse Hotel at some point. We talked about that. I'm still waiting, <laughs> for, the, I'm still waiting well, for the RFP. Yeah, between the pandemic, it hasn't really helped us. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're barely staying alive for now. You know, so the grandiose plans have to wait for a little bit. But, you know, everything... I, I, I didn't... For, by the way, it was one of the most exciting topics because I'm, I'm fascinated about these kind of boutiques. Yeah, I, I, so I, I love anything is boutique. 
That's why uh, that's why our business model we are not, we're gonna stay boutique practice. We're not gonna go to hundreds and you know like uh, being super commercial boutique restaurants, boutique hotels. I agree with you. And, you know, I, I feel the same way when, when people ask us what plans we are. Obviously, we would like to expand for all the obvious reasons, like anyone else, but in a very measured way. Because ultimately, if I don't feel like we're enjoying and getting the most out of it, and it's, to your point as well, something that you'd want to leave behind, I don't think there's a point. I don't think you go into things like architecture, F&B, or in those kind of businesses to make money necessarily. I mean, it's great if it's successful, but I think that will be the wrong way of thinking about it. And the results are probably not going to be what you expect. So you'll be disappointed. I believe, he, I believe if you do anything with passion, it's going to reward you. That's right. Financially. Yes. And emotionally, hopefully. And emotionally, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. I have one final question for you out of curiosity, because you kind of touched on that earlier. Could you see yourself at some point, much, much later, doing something completely different? Like, you know, not, not being an architect? Because some people can't see themselves in a different career, and some can. I'm not going to open a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> a competing restaurant, no. Competing. Um, I, I mean, like, this is the... I mean, I, I love architecture. I love it. But I always feel that there's something, there's another passion inside me somewhere different. Could be something else. Could, could be that, absolutely. And I think even our... I, I love product designs, furniture designs. So this is something also... Um, it's a different passion that maybe we, we start doing in the office. Um, and I love traveling. And I, I'm still trying to find the career that allows that me to... That goes with that. that. Who pays for your travel. Exactly. Yeah. Art. If you find it, let me know, please. I, I will, but I'm a huge... I mean, I, I loved... I loved I, even during the pandemic, I did... I mean, once, once the airports opened, I, I started to fly. No, you told I, me. I, I, love, I love traveling. So, um, and I think this is... If, if, you, if you combine your, your actual career with something that you also love and you do it as a hobby, that, that's, that's how you live uh, peacefully. Excellent. Tariq, thank you very much. My pleasure. It's Hashem. been a pleasure. Likewise. We'll keep the hotel in the back of our minds. I'm waiting. <laughs> Thanks again. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Hashim. As we come to the end of a tough year, I just want to say thank you to all of you for the support you gave us this year through the lockdown when we reopened, for all the love you've shown The Lighthouse, our podcast, and so much more. We hope many of you will come to The Lighthouse on New Year's Eve to celebrate with us. But for those that live abroad, we wish you a very happy new year and can't wait to see you in 2021. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and please share it with your friends, whether through WhatsApp or social media, this show travels best as a word of mouth, and we always love to hear from all our listeners. You can also catch up on any of our previous episodes by going to your favorite podcast player, be it Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of the others, and press subscribe. Or you can go to the web to thelighthouse.ae slash podcast, and you'll find all our episodes there. See you in January.